Good morning. It's so good to see you all again. Um, and I will tell you, now it may seem like to you, um, since we've been here together, it may seem like it's been an eternity since that preacher got here. Um, but for me, it really feels like in my heart that we just got together. It really does. And um, so as I think about leaving you all today, um, I'm reminded of those sweet words in that wonderful refrain from an old song that we used to sing at the breaking up of about every extended series of meetings when I was a little boy. And I don't hear it anymore among our people, and that's okay. Um, but there's a little refrain in there that has always touched my heart at times like these, and so I share it with you just now. And it expresses the feelings of my heart. What a blessing it has been for me to be with you all. The poet said, how swift the hours have passed away since we have met to sing and pray. How loath we are to leave the place where Jesus shows his smiling face. I hate to leave where I felt the Lord's presence uh, selfishly. But uh, as I leave, I'll carry you with me in my heart. It's been a very, very special place to be with you all here this weekend. And I leave you with my love and in my prayers. And I would be remiss, and this is not gratuitous, as Brother Lonnie Sr. would have said. Um, one of the sweetest parts of being here, aside from your immediate presence and uh, fellowship with our Savior, is seeing how the Lord has uh, blessed you with your pastor, seeing how the Lord has uh, blessed you all to transition to Brother Josh and Brother Josh to you all. Uh, I became pastor of a church almost 50 years ago for the first time. Um, and I've seen a lot of pastors with a lot of churches, and I think I have a sense of when uh, it has the blessing and the benediction, the approbation of the Holy Ghost, and when it doesn't. And seeing that dear man move among you this weekend has tendered my heart. The Psalmist David said about the kingdom of God, he said, where no oxen are, the crib is clean where you don't have oxen to plow a cornfield back then, there's no corn in the crib if you don't have an ox to plow the field. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But then he said, but there's much increase through the strength of an ox. And I'm so thankful to know that there will be increase at Vestavia Church for years to come because God has blessed you all with a noble ox. And so, uh, without further ado, because um, there are quite a few verses here to read, and I don't apologize for the reading of God's Word. We know at least that portion of the message is inspired, amen? <laughs> Whether anything else happens after that or no, we know those 20 verses. And the older I get, the more I read. But it's necessary for us to get, the, to get the sense of the text. It's really two different 
happening. Jesus is passed over uh, from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. People have thronged him. This is Mark chapter 5. If you'd like to turn with me, I apologize. Mark chapter 5. Go to verse 22. He's off of the ship. A crowd has thronged him, as is happening in his public ministry now. Give you just a minute to get there. And as that crowd is pressing him, behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now he's a man of authority, and he would be well positioned in society. Uh, the ruler of a synagogue would be typically somewhat affluent, a person of means, social standing and a leader. And when Jairus sees Christ, he just fell at his feet. In a patriarchal society, that's not the place of a patriarch. He just falls right at the feet of Christ. And he besought him. That means he begged him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, Come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. I can imagine the beat of the Father's heart now thinking there's hope. The Christ is here. But in the midst of that, a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians. Listen to this. She'd spent all that she had. She was none the better but rather grew worse. You ever felt like that? Done all I know to do, and I'm not any better for it. I'm in worse shape than when I got started. It's the way she is. And when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind, just like Jairus did, and she touches his garment, and she said, if I may but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Straightway. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, he turned about in the press and he asked a question not for his benefit. He knows when he's ministering to one of his lambs and sheep. But he asked for the benefit of those round about him who touched my clothes. What a Touching event is this, and the disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. And the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came, fell down before him, and told him all the truth. Such a relief to do that with a Savior from time to time. I just have to kind of unburden my soul every once in a while and tell him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogues how certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? No hope. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. 
And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house, the ruler of the synagogue, and he seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And that day you would hire mourners if you were affluent, if you were of means, to see that your loved one was properly mourned as an expression of your love. You would hire mourners, and people would come and weep greatly and vociferously. There they were, and when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. That's in the next verse. That's how we know they're professionals and they're insincere. Because when Jesus says she's not dead, she's asleep, they laugh him to scorn. They want him out of the way. He's going to interfere with their paycheck. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and he entereth wherein the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and he saith unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. You know, I spoke last night for a little while that God never permanently attaches himself to an object. There's only one thing that permanent, he's permanently attached to that has to do with his presence. That's the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, you have to be careful about when you get dry and weary and you um, go to old familiar places that, well, I'll hear this song, that'll do it for me. I'll read this scripture, that'll do it for me. And I told you that sometimes they lose their fragrance because God will have us honor him, not an object or a thing, not even his word. And uh, that there are some that I have shared some messages repeatedly, but they lose their fragrance. And uh, so I have to leave them alone. I go away from them. But I want to tell you this morning, this is one of those precious passages. Thank God that has never lost its fragrance for me. I have refreshed myself here again and again and again in the truths that it represents to me. And I want to share some of those truths with you this morning if the Lord will help me for just a little while and you'll pray for me. There are three things that I want to share with you this morning in the time that we have remaining to us and I'll be as expedient as possible. This is the third service. Um, the fact of his presence, his priority and his practice. His presence, his priority and his practice. You know, we read the Gospels, and that's why I ask new believers to begin, typically with the book of Mark. It's the most succinct, concise look at the life of Jesus. We read the Gospels, and if, if we're not careful, we'll become complacent over the fact, as we shared last night, we will get over the fact that God came to this earth 2,000 years ago. Now, let me say, that truth, that truth singularly, his presence on the face of the earth separates us as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ 
that separates us as a faith from every other religious system on the face of the earth. The fact of the presence of our God on the face of the planet Earth. And uh, I try to be very kind to believers of all other faiths. But for the grace of God, there go I. But I think about them, and every other religious system in some way teaches this. Their sacred writings, their holy men and women, their prophets, their message boils down to this in some way. They come, their scriptures, their prophets come to tell their adherents how they can get to God. Their gods, their lords have sent their prophets and their word to tell their people how to get to them. But praise his holy name. Our God did not send his word and did not send his prophets to tell us how to get to him, but they were sent to tell us how he's coming to us. That's different from every other religious. We're the only, we're the only religion, and what a sweet religion, and it's not just a religion, it's a relationship, but we're the, we're the only system of belief that teaches that our God came where we are who lived among us, who walked among us, who talked among us. It was, it was shattering. It was, I mean, it was just overwhelming. The idea, especially to those strong monotheistic Jews, they were the last group. I mean, the apostles were the last bunch that would have embraced that God has come in the flesh, and they wouldn't have held to it if it had not been for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the capstone. But they would not have, they were the last, last group of suspects that would have believed that God's come in. They embraced Jehovah, the uh, transcendent God, the ineffable the self-existing, eternal, uncreated God that was the holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y God, the holy other God who was H-O-L-Y. And we can't come close to him and he can't come close to us. And it was staggering to them. The Jews wouldn't believe it. The Greeks in their culture, they believe there's no way that their God could come close to material. They believe that everything to do with material, if uh, godness, if divinity touches material, then divinity becomes corrupt because all matter is corrupt. That's what the Greeks believe. And that God couldn't come close. A God, their God. Um, the divine intelligence, the force of the universe could not come close to matter because all matters corrupt. So the Jews nor the Greeks could embrace that God could come close. Yet the truth remains that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Greeks would have had that, Logos. 400 years prior, Herodotus, a Greek philosopher had come up with the idea of Logos. 
Before John wrote, in the beginning was the Logos, Herodotus had taught 400 years earlier, a Greek philosopher, that there is something called the Logos. There is this divine intelligence that has kind of orchestrated everything. It's kind of molded and shaped everything, but it's so far superior to matter and, and to this universe, to the cosmos, it may not even be aware of it today. It's so transcendent. That was their idea of the Logos. So they could go with the first four verses that John wrote. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. Okay, the Logos. We get that. All things were made by him. Without him, not anything made that was made. In him is life. And the life was the light of men. They're still with John. But in verse 14, when John wrote these revolutionary, over-the-top words, when John said, Praise God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten, full of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, as you know, means to tabernacle or pitch a tent. 2,000 years ago, our God loved us enough to come into this world and pitch his tent among us for 33 and a half years. And here he is. <laughs> here is his presence. Does that amaze you at all? Does that stagger you? Can you read through the Gospels and not be touched by that? That God came near. He cared enough to come. And so he did, and here he is fact of his presence and as you go to college you continue to go to college I've had in as I shared I interact with institutes of higher education on the board of one of our colleges state colleges in the state of Florida and they know that I'm a pastor and I've had I've had many professors who've engaged me as a pastor as I interact with them on committees on the campus and they would personally say, you know, Brother Crawford, I, get, I can believe in a divine intelligence. I, I get it. There, there's too much organization here. There's too much complexity. There has to be a designer behind all of this. But it's just a bridge too far for me to believe that that divine intelligence, it's just, it seems too good to be true that that divine intelligence would come here. Well, it's good and it's true. It's the Christian's hope and glory is that he came. That's his presence on to his priority. So there are two critical events that occur here. Jesus comes, Jairus appears. Jairus appears, and he, this ruler, this noble man, this affluent man, this leader in his community, he prostrates himself. He throws caution to the wind. He prostrates himself at the feet of the Son of God, embarrassing himself in some camps. And he begs the Savior, my little daughter is lying at the point of death. I've conducted the funerals of at least a half a dozen children in my time. There's no heartbreak like the heartbreak, the loss of a child, nothing it seems like comes close. 
and you've had heartbreak that's unique to you. I don't mean to diminish that. I'm just telling you what I've observed as a pastor. I understand the panic. I've stood over, I've stood over the bed of my son when he was just a little baby with Sydney's grandmother and Aubrey's grandmother by my side, him on a respirator, a lung collapsed, fighting for his life as a little two-month-old infant. Nothing paralyzes the heart of a parent like that. I understand where Jairus is. And so, now listen, I'm not in the medical field. I'm a mere educator. <laughs> and I didn't spend the night at Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> So I don't know about medicine, but I do understand the difference between an acute illness and a chronic illness. An acute illness is intense and requires immediate intervention for its care. A chronic illness can go on over time. It can be very burdensome. It can create a grind as is recorded in the word of God where a young sister had an infirmity for 12 years and she had a spirit of infirmity that accompanied it. It was chronic, it was long lasting and it bowed her over physically. I'm not diminishing chronic illness, but chronic illness goes on. Acute illness typically doesn't. You must do something now. And so medical specialists do something they call triage. When people come into an ER and they divide things between acute and chronic, acute and chronic. This is acute, we have to see about it. It's, it's a heart issue, it's a cardiac issue. That'll get their attention. And the other one, I think I have the flu. Will you sit over here while we take care of this heart attack? Acute, not as acute. The, the lady that comes to Jesus, she has a chronic illness. She's been carrying it for years. J. Iris's daughter, it's clear we know. We see behind the scenes. We know her issue is acute. If the master does not go, she's going to die. He doesn't and she died. Why does he do what he does? And this is the point of his priority. And this is something I constantly have to wrap my heart and my mind around in my life. And this may come as a shock to some of you. God has his own agenda. And his agenda, you may not believe this, but heaven's agenda may not be your agenda. I want to be kind in saying that. But the level of peace that you have in your heart and in your mind, I've determined this many years ago, the level of peace, the, the amount of joy that I experience in my life there's a direct correlation between David Crawford getting his agenda in line with God's agenda. I can just see, I can see the apostles. You know, they're, they're following the man. They're following the man Christ Jesus who is beginning, by anybody's measure, Jesus is beginning the most important movement that's ever been on the face of the earth. And uh, it doesn't, whether you believe in him or whether you don't believe in him, just by sheer numbers, there are more people that profess a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ on the face of the earth than there are any other religion. Just in sheer numbers, whether you're a believer or not, uh, the numbers say that it's the most important movement that's ever been on the face of the earth. And so the way these men are thinking, they're still thinking it's a political kingdom. The apostles, 
So they see Jairus come, they would be a little excited about that. Now, here's somebody we can leverage his human capital in our campaign to take the world. Jairus could help us. This is going to be a plus. We can use Jairus. We're going to help Jairus. And then comes this little woman who has nothing to offer the Son of God. We know that. We've been told she spent all that she had. She's none the better. She's worse. She's in bad shape. And I can just see, especially a couple of the apostles who shall remain nameless, I can just see a couple of those apostles, one standing on one foot and then standing on another. Jesus, don't stop and bother with her. We've got to get to Jairus. We can help Jairus. Jairus in turn can help us. Christ's agenda is not our agenda all the time. What I think is important, I'd have been with them. I'd have thought she can make it. We gotta go. This is acute over here. And we get that way in our life. Lord, this is this should be primary. This should be what I'm focused on. Help me here. I don't need to walk down this path. I need that path. He knows what path you need. I in Baker County am the great agenda setter. I'm I'm a recovering control addict. <laughs> I am. <laughs> But I still don't hold a meeting without an agenda. I don't like surprises. Um, I don't. But at the end of each one of my agendas, I have any other issues. I do give voice to people that are in the meeting under any other issues. But if it looks like it's going to be complicated, I say, listen, we'll just put that on agenda for the next meeting. It wasn't on this agenda. God has perpetually tore up my agendas in my life. Praise his name. One of the most difficult days of my life, this was whenever I kind of got on the road, about 40 years of age. Um, you know, my wife, it was during that period when my wife was at home. Um, she was in bed. She was in full body cast for about six months. I had an 18-month-old baby at home. And uh, uh, I was principal of the high school, pastoring a church. And uh, on Tuesday night, the school board was going to be at the high school, and it was a statutory required meeting that I had to chair. And um, I had errantly scheduled an appointment for a preacher out of town to be there. And I was, I was juggling just as hard as I could all the things that I had to juggle in my life, and there were too many things. And I went, do you all remember, some of you old enough remember the Ed Sullivan show, that plate spinner that would come on there, and he'd start that plate and spin that plate, and just before that plate, I was a professional plate spinner back then. And uh, it looked like they were going to fall. And there was a fellow that was following me, in the community, keeping up. He didn't think I could do it all. And he was constantly nipping at my heels. He was like one of Job's miserable comforters. God love him. And he heard on Sunday that we were going to have a meeting when the school board was coming. That's how close he was following. That we're going to have a meeting. Because um, he talked to me, he said, you're going to have to give up the high school. You have to give up the church. You're going to have to do one of there. You can't keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you for the encouragement. So, uh, he came to my house on Sunday and he said, I just found out you're going to have a meeting on Tuesday night when the school board's going to be at the high school. How are you going to pull that off? And for the first time in my life, I didn't have an answer. It just dawned on me right then that my agenda was not working out. It was the first, at 40 years of age, it was the first time I ever told somebody this in a meaningful way. 
I looked at him, and it, by the way, this becomes one of the most liberating moments in my life, and if you're struggling with trying to control everything in your life and keep things on your agenda, listen to me very carefully. I looked at him, and I couldn't, it was so hard to say these words. I, I'm, go, I'm about to say, I don't know. I've never told anybody that professionally. Why don't know? I, it's, I, they just wouldn't. But I opened my mouth, and I looked at him, and he was so excited because he had me. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And whenever I cast the, con the complete control in my life over, and listen, I was preaching, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. I preach that on Sunday morning. You know, be careful for nothing, but in everything, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I would preach that and do very little of it. But for the first time, I looked at him and I said to anybody, I don't know. And when I said that, this is the Holy Spirit immediately filled my mouth with this. And I, I wasn't even thinking of it. He filled my mouth right behind that. I looked at him and I said, I don't know, and this came to me, but you know what? The greatest peace I've ever had, I said, but my heavenly father knows where I have to be Tuesday night, and he knows what's going on Tuesday night, and he's gonna make a way for me. I wish you could have seen the look on his face. It was like I had sprayed him with pepper spray. His face got contorted. He didn't, he was waiting for me to give some answer about, you know, how you gonna, he got contorted, and he left as quickly as it, well, I'll see you later, you take care. I never heard from that man again, never, never again. And if I had time, I'd tell you how it worked out, and it was amazing, but I don't have time. I want to get to his practice. But Jesus does not do, it's counterintuitive what he does here. He pauses with the chronic case, and he does not bother with the acute case. That's not what I would have done. But his ways, the last thing I'll say about this, his ways, praise God, are not our ways. Isaiah said, they're as high as the heavens are above the earth and past finding out. We may need to learn that God's probably a little smarter and wiser than we are. Okay, so that's his presence. Jesus is here. As long as he's here, it's going to be okay. That's his priority. He is the ultimate agenda setter. And now to his practice. I'm really trying to get out of here earlier, and it's not working. I'm sorry. So his practice. This is the sweetest part of it all, his practice. So why troublest thou the master any further? The damsel is dead. You can only imagine how crushing, how crushing the heart of her father has become. I can't mind. You know, sometimes you'll think about it. You'll just ride down the road and you think, what would life be like if, if my wife were not here, or my husband were here, or my daughter wasn't here, or my, grand, or my grandchild, God forbid, my grandchild. We, we can't, you can't think about it long, can you? Jairus is faced with the bitter reality. And then Jesus said, no, it's okay. She's, she's just sleeping. She's okay. 
And Jesus goes, um, I've said this before. <laughs> you know, Jesus did not go. He tarries. He purposefully tarries before he goes to Bethany where Lazarus dies. And you know why he tarries? You know why he does not go to Bethany? Because it's his will for Lazarus to pass away. And if Jesus goes there, have you ever read anywhere in the Gospels where anybody ever dies in the presence of Jesus? Have you ever seen that? He's the prince of life. It's not possible for anyone to die in his presence. He broke up every single funeral he ever attended. He was the bane of funeral directors in Palestine. They did not like to see him coming. And these professional mourners certainly. No, she's okay. She's just asleep. They left him. Get away. Leave our money alone. And he puts... So... They leave. He brings the mother and father into the room where this young, young girl is lying. Now, for our purposes, from a human perspective, she's dead. There's no life in her body. I want to be clear about that. Peter, James, and John comes in, and this is his practice. Son of God walks over to her, and he says these words. This is what our Savior does. He walks over to her and he says these words. Talitha kumai. And the King James translators correctly, of course, translate. And they say, it says, damsel, arise. Well, damsel does not resonate with us like it would have resonated with those who spoke the king's English in 1611. The term damsel, it's a little different today. There's another word that we would think of. I want you to see his practice, how gentle he is. He goes to her, and this is it. This is, this is the word. This is what it represents. This is the tenderness of our Savior. This is his practice. <clears throat> I only had one child. And folks say, boy, he talks about a lot about his experience. Well, it's the only experience I have. I don't have yours. I have one son. One son, one child. John Anthony Crawford. And as far as his mother's concerned, he's the only boy that's ever been in this world. He is. We patronize her about that. Uh, but his dad loves him as well. Never caused us any grief, any harm. I never had to go get him from anywhere. Never brought any embarrassment to us before he went to the high school. I told him, listen, son, this was the summer before he we went to the high school. I said, son... You're going to the Baker County High School where I've been principal for many years. I'm the principal of the Baker County High School. I've been pastoring McClinney Primitive Baptist Church in Baker County for uh, about 35, 40 years then. I just want you to think about that. No pressure, son, as you go over there. It's okay. 
I love that boy. I want y'all to know that. I'm not ashamed. I love him. He's the beat of my heart. And so as I tell you what I would say to him at night, I said the same thing. I did the same thing every night when he was in my home. Every single night that he slept under my roof, I did the same thing. And I used this term. But before I use this term, I, I want you to know this. I tried to raise a man. I tried to raise a young man that was able to protect, provide, take care of. He, uh, he played middle linebacker on our high school football team. He was, but he was a kind, caring, compassionate young man. But he played middle linebacker on our high school football team. He was very kind off the football field. But on the foot, he became something else. But every night, it didn't matter whether he was two or whether he was 20. Every night, I would go to the bed where he had laid down for the night. Before he went to sleep, I'd go into his room, and I would reach over, and I would kiss him right on his forehead. And I'd say, I love you, darling. That's right. I call that big strapping boy, darling. You raise your own boy. Do with him what you want. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. He wasn't ashamed. He didn't have to wonder whether his daddy loved him or not. Every night, and I still do. I still do. He's in my house at night. I go to where he is, bend over, kiss him on his head, and tell him, I love you, darling. That's the word here. That is the word. Jesus went to where that little girl was. That tender, compassionate Savior reached over and he said this. Get up, darling. Get up, darling. Well, that's nice. The fifth chapter of the book of Mark. That's great. It's good to read about it. Glad that happened for her. Um, so I'll tell you one last story, and then I'm going to go home. This is his practice. In Mark 5, and this is his practice in November 2023. Several years ago, in our church, it's a young lady. She came when she was just a little girl. And she was the apple of our eye. We loved her all so much. I wish you could have met her. I wish you could have known her. She was the kind of loving person as a child that could transform you, could make a difference in who you are and how you treated other people. We carried her with us. She was growing up before we ever had John Anthony. And we tried many, many years to be parents. We've been married 17 years before we were parents. So her parents sweetly, kindly let us kind of help raise Maggie. You couldn't help but want to be around this child. She was a magnet. And my wife and I would tell each other all the time, you know, have you ever been around this kind of person where it's kind of like, it seems like they don't belong here. Have you ever met someone like that? They're kind of otherworldly. Like, they, they're not like the rest of us. They're so precious. So she was like that from the time she was a child, and she never changed. Loved everybody. She saw everything, you know, 
you know, unicorns, rainbows, everything, and rainbows in a good way. Uh, but it, everything was wonderful. And even as she grew up, I was preaching a meeting in Lexington, Kentucky, and it happened the first time. We carried her with us on that church trip. She was 12 years old, and we were eating a Cracker Barrel, and she became sick on her stomach. And uh, that was the first sign that there was anything wrong. And so we got home, and she stayed ill, and her mother carried her to the doctor. They began to run tests. And Maggie had Crohn's disease. You can live a long time with Crohn's disease, but back then they were trying a new drug, and it went off of the market pretty quickly. And the drug that they tried with Maggie killed her liver. And she struggled. It eventually it took several years, but it began the dying process in her. It was over a period of years that it happened. She remained just as sweet, just as wonderful, just as kind into her early 20s, but she suffered horribly. She suffered horribly, had a liver transplant, just, it wasn't working out. After about 10 years of that, she was in the Mayo Clinic on the coast, and uh, she was doing very poorly, and her kidneys were beginning to shut down. And we, now listen, we loved Maggie at our church. The whole community, Baker County, loved her. We're all praying for Maggie. Everybody's praying for Maggie. All around the nation, prayers for Maggie, always, constantly. But she was weary, and... Uh, she was going to have to begin kidney dialysis. Just another level of suffering. And so her mother called me and said, Maggie's going to go on dialysis. They're going to be in the treatment this morning. It's Wednesday morning. She's going to have the treatment. So had prayer again. And then her mother called me about noon and said, uh, Brother David, they got to the elevator with Maggie, and she was in the wheelchair she held her hands out and stopped the wheelchair at the elevator and said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. We were so selfish. <laughs> we were so heartbroken. I wanted to go beg her. I would have gotten on my knees. We loved her so much. So much goodness left this world when Maggie left. She said, um, she wants to see you. Can you come this evening? So I went, <laughs> my father died, and he was taken off of dialysis, so I understood the process. <clears throat> so I went to see her that night, and uh, I went to her room, and asked her mother and father if I could speak to her by myself. They were very gracious. And so I sat down by her bed, and I took her hand, as I had many times previously, and I said, Maggie, I understand your decision. I respect it. My soul is cut in two, but I respect it. I support you. And I said, do you understand what lies ahead? She said, I do. There's a little pet name at home that the kids call me. It's B-E-R-B, -E Burb. She said, I do, Burb. I know what's ahead. So I looked at her. 
doing the best I could to be her pastor. And I said, Maggie, are you afraid? And this is what she said. She said, Verb, do you remember when you were going to Africa for the first time with Brother Tim? We had been conscripted by Brother Sam. <laughs> he can talk in about anything, can he? I said, I do, Maggie. He's, she said, do you remember I asked you, Burb, are you afraid? Do you have any fear of going to Africa? And, and I said, Maggie, well, no, yes, I've just never been there. I don't know what to expect. And so she told me, no, yes, I'm afraid, I'm not afraid. She said, Burb, you see, I've just never been to heaven. I don't quite know what to expect. But she said, I know this. <laughs> she knows this practice. She said, I know this. I've heard you preach it many times. But when it comes my time to leave this world, Jesus is not going to send one of his angels for me. I know that Jesus is going to come into this room. And when my head is pressing this pillow, this is what this darling told me. She said, Jesus is going to come into this room. She's going to take, he's going to take my hand. And he's going to say, child, come home. And so about four days after that, I got the call at about three o'clock in the morning. This is exactly what happened. This is his practice. Jesus went into Maggie's room and reached out and took her hand and said, darling, get up. And Maggie got up. And her precious soul and spirit like a bird let out of a gilded cage, took their celestial flight. And she went into the arms of her savior, into the better land, into the happy land. And that's why I'm not afraid to die. His own soft hand shall wipe the tear from sorrow's weeping eye. And pain and grief and groans and fears. And death itself shall die. <laughs> That's his practice. At Calvary, he killed death. So that today there is no such thing as death for the child of God. Just this, darling, get up. That's what our Savior does. And that's why I love him. He's conquered my greatest enemy. And I believe this. If Jesus can take care of death for me, he can take care of anything this side of death. Don't you believe that? He can. He has. He does. And he will. Make his agenda your agenda. And you'll see it. I love you all. God bless you with my prayer.